Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the East Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Trabhagen, an anthropologist and professor in the program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Sheila Smith to talk about her recent book, Japan Rearmed, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2019. Dr. Smith, thank you for joining me on the New Books Network. Thank you, and I hope you'll call me Sheila, but thank you, John, uh, for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I prefer more uh, informal as well. So yes, we'll go with uh, Sheila and John. That's much better. So let's start with a little bit of background. Um, Sheila is the Johnny e. Merrow Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's an expert in Japanese politics and foreign policy and has published very widely on Japanese domestic and international politics. She's the author of the Council on Foreign Relations Interactive Guide, Constitutional Change in Japan, and uh, is a regular contributed, uh, contributor to the Council on Foreign Relations blog, uh, Asia Unbound, as well as a frequent contributor to major media outlets in the United States and Asia. And on top of all of that, uh, she's also chair of the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission. Um, so I guess I'd like to start by asking uh, how you got interested in Japanese politics and more specifically in Japanese military power and maybe how that got into the, the writing of this book. Wow. Well, thank you, John. This is um, my evolution in the study of Japan began back in my early 20s when I studied Japanese language and culture at Sophia University in Tokyo. And I had the wonderful opportunity to live with a Japanese family when I first arrived in Tokyo. And that family uh, were the um, descendants of Buddhist priests. They weren't the actual Buddhist priest at the time in that temple, but I lived on a temple ground from with a family uh, of Soto sect Buddhist priests. Uh, so that was lovely. For those of you who are not experts on Zen, that is the Japanese, what they call the Japanese Zen approach to the practice of Buddhism. It's a lovely thing. So I went off to Eheji and did you know, Zen the whole bit. So I was extraordinarily taken, obviously, with the Japanese culture and language and uh, the Japanese family to this day. Is, you know, I, I know several generations now of that family, uh, and I've been in, incorporated into it in a way that I, I, I can't imagine life without them. Um, so that was the very I, I would say that was my, the beginning of my formal study of Japan. Um, I went from there to Columbia University where, you know, remember this is the early 80s. So Japan, it was a rising power. The way we talk about China today is the way we talked about Japan back then. The only difference then was that Japan was an ally of the United States. And most of my colleagues at the time were those in, in the international relations world uh, of the political science department were more focused on political economy. And that makes sense to most of us Japan watchers because Japan's economy was taking the world by storm. Um, Ezra Vogel, not that 
long earlier had written this book, Japan is Number One, um, which sold millions of copies, more than millions probably in, in Japan itself. Um, but, you know, our politics in the United States, where the, the Japan was coming, you know, Japan was this um, just amazing new power and it was doing everything right where America, as you'll remember in the late 70s, early 80s, was doing everything wrong. Um, and I, you know, I could see the problems with that, but uh, the political economy piece for me was not the puzzle. The puzzle for me was why Japan didn't translate its wealth into hard power, into military power. And of course, so this gets us right into Japan's post-war, pre-war and post-war history. It's, it's um, you know, the question about, which is quite up your street as an anthropologist, right, is can a society fundamentally change that way? Um, and now that Japan had all this power and it was technological economic power to be sure, everybody assumed that it was just a matter of time before Japan would become a nuclear power. You know, lots of people writing books about this, you know, fast forward a little later in the decade and you get the coming war with Japan, you know, <laughs> all kind of speculative, weird sort of approaches. But, but it was so ingrained in international relations thinkers, right? Political scientists who look at world politics that economic power inevitably leads to military power. And for me, that was the puzzle. Because the Japan I lived in and watched and saw very much uh, did not want military power, um, was quite happy being the richest guy in the block <laughs> and all the benefits that accrued from that, uh, although that was an uneasy place for Japan to be over the course of that decade. Um, but, but, but so for me, that was the puzzle, and that's what I went looking at, and that's where I started, and I wrote my PhD dissertation. So this is a long-winded answer to your question, but I wrote my PhD dissertation on it, that the title, I think, at the time was the Japanese self-defense forces at the crossroads of the post-war and the cold war or something like that. But, but it was a, you know, how do you manage uh, this, you know, unique Japanese norm of self-restraint with a, a cold war in which military power, the currency of military power was, was quite important, not only to each country, but to the coalition on each side of the cold war. So that's how I ended up looking at Japanese uh, defense policy and doing field work and all kinds of stories I can tell you about if you'd like. <laughs> oh, I hope we hear some of the stories, definitely. Uh, <laughs> some really good moments. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the best part of field work. Um, do, do any of them involve alcohol? Because a lot of mine do. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. But... <laughs> yes. Um, but actually, this is one of the things that I really loved about the book is that it, it really does move away from this kind of narrow focus on political economy and, and really explore some of the cultural questions that are, you know, that are related to this. Because, and, you know, I'm an anthropologist, so I'm biased, but my image of a lot of what I read that comes out of, of political science is that somehow culture isn't part of the equation. And of course, it can't not be. It has to be part of the equation. And so... One of the themes that I found that ran through the book um, is kind of the shifting attitudes um, of the U.S. in relation to Japanese military strength. And, of course, this is a cultural component to it as well. And, you know, it didn't – I've had these these images at times that, you know, right after the war, um, they, they wanted to do everything they could down to shut down Japan's military. And then, you know, 10 years later when they figured out Japan wasn't going to become another authoritarian state all over again, you know, they were – basically crushing the beer cans around the Oval Office going, oh, what did we do? Uh, because 
all of a sudden it got kind of deeply ingrained in Japan that, no, we don't want to be a military power. And so um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the U.S. sort of backed away from its intention to have this um, Japan disarm following the war and, and why this happened and why it changed. So I would say, you know, I am not an anthropologist. So what I wanted to do in the book and the way that I approach the study of how domestic politics affects foreign policy choice, which as you kindly introduced me when you were giving that nice introduction, I that has largely been the area where I have love to do research and where I am interested. Um, and so that nexus between domestic politics and, and foreign policy choices, where I, I do a lot of my uh, research and writing. But I would say it's the interaction between policy and society in some ways um, that we have, in political science at least, policy is a bad word, right, these days, which I think is incredibly short-sighted for the academic discipline itself. Um, but I think it's also as we think about policy, we have somehow become distant from the society in which this policy is supposed to, the society that this policy is supposed to serve. And so I take a, a kind of who are the consumers of policy as as well as who are the producers of policy kind of approach. And I, when I speak publicly, I like to make that distinction that way. Um, I don't do it that way in the book, but we often, when we think about policymaking, we, we focus on the bureaucrats, we focus on the politicians, we focus on the the elites who think about these issues. Um, sometimes we're smart and we think about the interest groups that that are behind the the the, the those elites. Um, but as we see today in the United States and Japan and every country around the world, right, you cannot dissociate foreign policy choice from the society and the social actors that it affects. And whether it's to the right or to the left, it doesn't matter. You always have an impact on foreign policy. And I, 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 that people often try to dissociate, right, from social interactions or domestic politics. So I think it's, um, it's just always been something that's intrigued me. Why do we as policymakers or as political scientists seem to se want to separate ourselves out? And that's where our disciplines, our academic disciplines sometimes do us a disservice. We think we have to stay in our lane and therefore we have a very narrow conception of the political social phenomenon we're trying to explain when in fact the world is more complicated than that. <laughs> um, but on the book itself, I would say there's a whole host of social actors that are in that book. Um, and the title very specifically says Japan rearmed because I, for the decades and I, that I've been looking at this problem or at this issue or evolution uh, of a set of issues, <laughs> it, it, people make the silly assumption that Japan doesn't have a military. Japan is not armed. Japan has Article 9, therefore it has no military power. And I start out by saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> Japan rearmed <laughs> pretty much by 1960, 65 at the latest, right? And had the, mil the military, which is called the Self-Defense Force, had primary responsibility for the defense of the, the territorial defense of Japan in 1960, which is when it took over the air defense mission from the United States military. So Japan has long been rearmed. That's not the question. It's invest. It's one of the top 10 investors in military power in the world, has been for decades. The real issue is how does Japan choose to use that power, right? Um, and so that's why the book is titled the way it is. And I run through various sectors of debate in Japan, debate 
in, among policymakers, debate inside the military itself, debate in the alliance, as you pointed out, um, and 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 sort of popular debate to be able to show people that there isn't a Japanese point of view <laughs> on the military. It's really quite complicated, and it is neither captured by pacifism or militarism, which is the words we like to use when it comes to Japan. Um, but it has evolved it, it, a lot in lockstep with the American expectation of allies. So that's where you get that theme. It has evolved in expectation also of um, Japanese elites' desire for independence from the United States um, and from the strategic protection that they still rely on today. But it, 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 it runs the gamut of a whole host of actors inside Japan as well as they have changed their point of view on what role Japan should have in the world, but also what role the military instrument should play in Japanese statecraft. Yeah, that, I think that was, you know, one of the things that was really beautifully developed through the book. And I kept thinking about my own experiences, just talking to re regular people uh, about the quote unquote military in Japan. And it's actually very interesting to have a conversation with, you know, just like your neighbor. Uh, and I got into, I, I started a little experiment where I started using the word guntai, to describe the military, and I would always be corrected. No, it's a jietai. And then people would say, you have a guntai in the United States. We have a jietai. And that, but, you know, on the one hand, you might say, well, that's just semantic. But no, conceptually, it's very powerful. The way they think about the what the military is, is totally different from the way I think Americans think about it. Is that is that your experience? Too? Absolutely. You know, there was a really great book. Um, I can't remember when it was published. It was in the 90s. And it was edited by Patricia Steinhoff of the University of Hawaii and um, Theodore Bester, Ted Bester, who was at Columbia and then Harvard and uh, very sadly is no longer with us. But it is a wonderful book and it's called Fieldwork, Doing Fieldwork in Japan. And what they did is they got a whole bunch of people of different disciplines, different focal points, and to talk about their fieldwork experience. And I wrote an essay for that book uh, on exactly that topic of language, right? Um, and so it's not only about that, but a large part of my essay was you had to learn the way in which the Japanese themselves talked about their military, or they thought it was okay to buy this kind of weapon, but with no bombs attached. Or <laughs> So there was a minute interpretation of the meaning of Article 9 in the Constitution, which says that Japan, you know, there's two paragraphs, and it's I, I spend some time in the book laying this out because it's important. But not only Japan, the most important part is the Japanese people forever renounce the use of force to settle international disputes. And that language is taken from an international disarmament, well, not disarmament, but an international treaty called the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. So that's straight out of international law and, and diplomatic history. The second paragraph is the Japanese trying to say, okay, we won't have weapons for that purpose, but you have to acknowledge our right to self-defense, right? So there's a very weird bureaucratic kind of tr transition to a second paragraph that says, we will not have war potential. Sendyoku, right? For that purpose. And so for that purpose refers back to the settling international disputes, right? But the the diplomats at the time very much wanted to recognize what was inherent in the United Nations Charter, which is every nation's right to defend itself, the right of self-defense. And so that's why you have today, not a guntai, 
but a jietai because the Japanese government parsed that language in the constitution to allow the, the right of self-defense and therefore a military force designed for the execution of that mission. And so that's why we have a self-defense force today. But, you know, I was doing the same thing you just suggested. I was writing articles for Japanese journals while I was doing my PhD re research on this. And I would use the word guntai. And I, my first one I did, I had a Zemi professor and I gave him my thing. And I said, what do you think about this article? And it was going to be published in an international affairs journal in Japan, in Japanese. And he's like, he said, you either sound like a communist or <laughs> you sound you sound like a right winger. And I kind of went, what? <laughs> and of course, the reference to sounding like a communist was that the Chinese, I'm sorry, the Japanese Communist Party, um, of course, used the word guntai, right, it, as a criticism of the Japanese government and its pursuit of military power. Um, and then the right-wingers would want to have a guntai. <laughs> they didn't like this sort of namby-pamby self-defense force. They, they wanted a guntai uh, like they used to have. Um, so, you know, you had all kinds of political meaning in the language that you used to write about weapon systems, operational issues, policy statements, you know. Um, I talked about operational integration between Japanese and American forces, and they went, no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> We have U.S.-Japan defense cooperation. <laughs> so it, go, it runs all through the policy debate in Japan, and that was a struggle. That was a struggle. You know, that, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, I think one of the things I actually really enjoyed about the book was you, you, you wove the issue of, of this, you know, these issues in changing Japanese culture into the discussions about how they think about the military and, you know, really get to this point that Japanese don't think about their military the same way that, say, Americans do. And of course, Article Nine is central to this. And um, you know, I've one of the things that I've been struck with when I think about Article Nine. Well, when I talk to Japanese about Article Nine, what I actually think of is the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And it's not that this, it's the same, but there's something about Article Nine that's reminiscent to me of the Bill of Rights. The idea that this is foundational to who we are, to what our our political and our cultural identity is. And I think this is something that's often missed outside of Japan, that, that this is more than just an article in the Constitution. It has something to do with Japanese identity. And, and I'm curious what you think about that and, and also how you think maybe attitudes towards Article 9 may have been changing in the past 10 years, because I, I, my experience, they seem to be changing somewhat. And I'm curious about that. I think you're right. Um, but let's go back to the national identity piece first, because I think... You know, and I, this is for people who are interested in the Constitution specifically, I, I, I don't want to advertise my work in different ways, but, but that info guide on CFR.org that you recognize at the beginning, the constitutional change in Japan, it goes back to the early debates over Article 9 and the language and such. And this is something I've been writing about in different ways. Um, I wrote a piece, too, for the, the Asian Law Journal up at Columbia University um, on the debate in the parliament, in the diet, right, at the time that they were drafting the self-defense force law. And what we don't understand is that all of the basic ideas that we think are new to the Japanese debate were embedded in that debate. Will Japan have modern weapons? Well, modern weapons were nuclear weapons, because remember, Japan comes out of the war and smack into, A, the Korean War, and B, the nuclear era, right? So, 
kindai, kindai heiki was the word used throughout modern weapons. So kindai heiki were nuclear weapons. They didn't use nuclear weapons, but they, the reference point was for all the political parties at the time that were not wanting to have a military or thought, thought that this would violate Article 9, um, the self-defense force, right? They said, no, 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 we can't because it's a slippery slope to kindai heiki, <laughs> right? It's a slippery slope to becoming a nuclear power, basically, was implicit in the meaning. Um, but you get a lot of different points of view back then in the 1950s because the political landscape, we're, we're, we're early 50s, so we're seven years of U.S. occupation out of the end of you know, World War II. Um, so you've got progressive parties that are not progressive in the contemporary use of the word. <laughs> These are the people that lined up, right, the Imperial Way and other folks, right, of the, of the 30s. So they are deeply conservative, statist, pro-emperor, you know, pro-imperial uh, Japan uh, voices in, the, in this debate. And then there's the Japanese communists and socialists in, in this debate. And But it's a very sophisticated debate in the sense that it's not just ideological positions going off of each other. It is, well, what does this mean, right? So that's the politicians trying to grapple with what does Article 9 actually mean? And you'll be surprised to know the Japanese Communist Party thought that Japan's military should be a military. And the Japan... Japan should have an independent military, independent of the United States, right? And that Japan should be able to defend itself autonomously by itself. They didn't use the autonomy word. They meant they used um, um, independently of the United States is the phrase they use. So you've got all kinds of points of view there about what how Japan should emerge into this post-war era. Um, and not everybody wanted to, many, many of those diet members, parliamentarians, did not want to be tied at the hip militarily to the United States. Korean War was, again, the peace treaty with Japan was signed, as you know, right, just as the Korean War was coming to a close or trying to come to a close. So this was a volatile moment to be associated with the United States. Um, so, yeah, so you have a lot goes way back then. and But what you find in this larger uh, evolution that, that we're talking about is Article 9 becomes much more accepted by the Japanese public, not as something imposed by Americans on Japan, but as something that actually speaks to the Japanese desire for peace. And so you still have the right that said to calls this MacArthur's constitution pejoratively, right? This is this American general's constitution, it's not ours. But on the left, it was the peace constitution. And I would say largely among the Japanese public, that's the identity that really gets embraced is the the peace constitution. Japan is at peace, not because of American extended deterrence. Japan is at peace because it maintained Article 9. So again, again, if you're interested in those, there's early post-government polls that were done by the Japanese government asking the Japanese people, so do you like this constitution? <laughs> Is it yours? And it's interesting to see back then what what you know what what the Japanese people were telling their government. Ever since, of course, on Constitution Day, May second, you get the major newspapers polling the Japanese public, and you can see the evolution up and down, up and down. But you've basically got fifty percent of the Japanese public pretty consistently since this polling was done, I think seventies, eighties forward. You got about fifty percent of the Japanese public, five percent one way, five percent the other, who are saying, "Yeah, why not? Why not change it?" But that doesn't necessarily translate into changing Article Nine. Yeah, that that's an interesting thing. You know, one one of the things that I, I've found is that I think Article Nine becomes, for some people at least, actually a source of pride. It's it's something that this is who we are. We're we're different from everybody else, and um, we learned our lesson. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we're not going to go there again. And, um, but then you start seeing, I think in the, in the 2010s in particular, and more recently growing fear over their neighbors. Um, you know, you've got, of course, North Korea lobbing, you know, missiles over Northern Japan and this sort of thing. And as I've talked to people, I've found that, that there seems to be, I don't know if I'd call it fractures in that, but there's at least kind of growing concern about, well, how far can we go with Article 9? We actually really do have to defend ourselves. And has you encountered that kind of sentiment? So I think what I found was interesting in the polling data, and again, you've got much more consistent polling over time um, on the constitutional issue than you do on the threat perception issue, which is the external environment and what's happening out there and is it good or bad for Japan. So because you've got Constitution Day every year, you, you actually do have pretty deep and pretty thick, good, in a, in a good meaning, got thick, thick descriptive polling. And I would say Yomiuri is the best at it. Um, they, they, they break it down and ask several layers of questions depending on how you answer. But you've got much more consistent over time especially that post-war period. You've got different types of polling, but you've got polling on that Article 9 question over time. Threat perception really doesn't start to be something that the media, It's the government is never polling on threat perception, by the way. It's the media. So you've got, again, Yomiuri Asahi, Mainichi, NHK. I use Nikkei, Asahi, Yomiuri, those three newspapers generally because it's establishment right, sort of pseudo-establishment left, and then the Nikkei is the business community. So um, I use those three constantly, and that's what you'll find in the info guide on CFR.org if you want to look at that over time. But over time, you start to also, that's the constitution issue, but you start to see threat perception emerge. Um, And it's not necessarily that, oh, it's the China threat, not what we hear today, because what we hear today is actually much more focused, right? It's China, it's North Korea. But you start to see it in the 1990s, and it's stimulated by both of those countries, because that's, of course, in the mid-1990s is when the North Koreans decided that they were going to pursue nuclear weapons and the delivery capability, the missiles to deliver nuclear weapons. Um, And then you start to see China behave in ways that make us a little bit worried about their intentions towards Taiwan. And so you had in the mid-1990s, about the same time, in fact, you had a Taiwan crisis where you had an election in Taiwan and the Chinese said, we're going to move, they actually moved their missiles closer to the, to the, to the coastal area to say, we don't want you with a party that declares independence. So you start to see the Chinese begin to act in ways and they had just, you know, they had just not violated the the test comprehensive test ban treaty, but they just upgraded and tested sufficiently to allow them then to sign on to it because they could move their missiles. Right. So you see a, a good modernization effort by the Chinese on their nuclear arsenal. You see this focus on the Taiwan election um, and, and many in Japan start to get a little worried about, uh Oh, what kind of China might be coming, but it's not yet, massive the mass the Japanese public thinking China is is our enemy. I, I again I, I wrote a book before this book that actually goes through the changing Japanese perception of China. Uh, it's called Intimate Rivals. Um, Japanese politics and the rise of China. And that's something I would date even a decade earlier than you did, John, because I think it begins in the early 2000s when you've got mini trade disputes on shiitake and tatami mats and things like that. But you've also got the business community becoming much less willing to go out on a limb 
to advocate for a strong Japan-China relationship. So it also has to do with the domestic politics in Japan, the right-left balance, and the rise of a more nationalist uh, conservative leadership in Japan as well. Koizumi, of course, starts to go right, to Yaskuni Shrine, you start to get these kinds of uh, more conservative nationalist, revisionist nationalist is probably the right word for it, identity politics emerging in Japan, and, and the business community gets trapped in that a little bit. So let, let's talk about Yaskuni, because you didn't really bring that up much in the book, and, and um, I, I've had some of my own experiences. Uh, I I teach, when we don't have COVID, I teach a summer uh, program for international students at Waseda. And um, and a lot of the students come from the PRC. And and I always, every every summer I do a field trip to Yaskuni because I, I want to get into that. And there's a very interesting thing that happens is that I will have a group of students from the PRC who refuse to go. In fact, I uh, one year I almost had a coup in my class where a bunch of them emailed me saying, we demand you t- change the field trip to a different site. And, and yeah, and, and I understood, I understand the sentiment. And I also understand that there was, um, you know, one student told me at one point, well, there's fear because we're told not to go there um, when we leave. And so I, I got it. And I, you know, I, I tell the students, so you don't have to go if you don't want to, but, um, but I think I'm curious why you didn't, you know, talk more about Yaskuni Shrine and and also how how the shrine has played a role or not played a role in this discourse on rearmament in Japan. So I did, um, as I said, I did this book prior to Japan Rearmed, uh, Intimate Rivals, in which I was looking at the way in which the Japan-China relationship was beginning to sour. And of course, the most of the first, I did a sort of case study approach, looking at different components of the Japan, the issues that were starting to to shape not only popular attitudes, but also create policy conundrums for both sides, China and Japan, uh, on several issues, a range of issues. And the first issue I took up was the Yaskuni Shrine. So in Intimate Rivals, I actually have a very detailed chapter that looks at uh, you mentioned your Chinese students, but it meant, I meant, you know, basically how the Chinese began to comment on Yaskuni Shrine um, as a beautification of Japan's militarist past. Um, and you start to see that, again, as Koizumi starts to, for domestic political reasons, embrace the idea of a prime ministerial visit, right, which had long been in the post-war period. Maybe not verboten, but something that was overtly sort of striking to both Chinese and Koreans um, uh, outside of Japan. So they saw that very clearly as, and for your listeners who don't know Yasukuni Shrine, of course, Yasukuni Shrine, it was created um, as Japan was modernizing, but it was created specifically to tell Japanese people that their sons, I would say sons and daughters, but it was mostly sons, um, were going off to fight in the name of the emperor. So this was Imperial Japan's sort of um, way of tying the common soldier to the imperial purpose of of the Japanese imperial project, right? Um, And so the emperor prays for you if you die in the name of the emperor, right? Um, and that's why the, the Yasukuni Shrine became so hated by the Chinese and the Koreans, because of course it validated the those who had occupied them or had invaded them um, and colonized them. Um, and so it is, it has a whole, it has a huge political um, 
meaning for the countries that suffered from Japanese aggression prior to the war. But it also, in the occupation period, when the Americans landed after the defeat of Japan, the United States wanted to dismantle Yaskuni. Oh, I didn't know and, that. That's interesting. Yeah. And so mm. in that book, in that chapter, I mean, I well, as a, as a Japan nerd, you will understand, fellow Japan nerd, you understand that once you start with the, the surface question, you have to get into the, okay, how did we get here? Um, but how we began to get there in 1945 was the Americans wanted to get rid of Yaskuni. It was a main target of the occupation. And um, they wanted to dismantle it to completely, you know, delegitimize the imperial house and the any kind of militaristic attach, attachment to it, because militarism was what the, the Americans attached to Yaskuni. Not a heroic place of celebration for the veterans, but, and I had the darndest time coming up for the name of the chapter of that book. Um, because I didn't want to just put Yaskuni, but I wanted to describe what it was. What 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 is the issue that China and Japan are you know, getting in, 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 into a, a more heated discussion about? And I ended up calling it Imperial Veterans. Um, because it was the place where we would think of as veterans. And I'm not saying that to justify Japan's imperial practice, um, but they were a particular kind of veteran. Self-defense force officers, personnel don't go there, right? So, so it, is, it, is, it is identified very clearly, not as a national cemetery, like Arlington would be for the Americans, uh, but as a period piece of Japan's imperial expansion, right? Um, and so it also has some question of, not some, I'm not a wartime historian, but it has a significant amount of questionable history in the narrative that's presented there. Um, and that history actually became part of the bilateral U.S.-Japan conversation at some point. Um, uh, and I, it, it needed to be changed. The Americans were just as angry about it as the Chinese and the and the Koreans and and others were. Um, it, it needed to be changed in the sense that the United States was uh, offended by it, um, and historians took issue with it. So there was a lot of historical, like academic historical, focus on it as well. The same way we would have towards our our Smithsonian Institute portrayal of the end of World War II as well. So. You know, these are not fraught. These are not only the the publics or the combatants in particular wars that take issue. Everybody seems to take issue. So, so Yaskuni is a place that I didn't think on the Japan Rearmed book. I thought I saw it as um, the Japan Rearmed book really deals with military defense needs, um, policy debates. You know what kind of operation there's a chapter called mobilizing the military which is all about as you noted north korea's missiles and chinese you know navy and aircraft intrusions into japanese airspace and, and waters the actual what do the military need to do now <laughs> to defend japan how does that change and evolve in, in in response to the 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 international environment so that chapter gets us into ballistic missile defense gets us into the debate that's going to come to fruition this year which is the counter strike question does japan need offensive weapons in fact is ballistic missile defense is not enough um so that was me tracing through the way in which the self defense force missions were evolving in response to an environment that was increasingly seen as threatening to Japan. Um, the, the constitutional debate chapter 
in Japan Rearmed is where I get a little bit more at the politics of do we need to change the constitution and have a real military, right? Um, and But the Yasukuni for me was much more, uh, it belonged much more in the book about the triggers. I hate to use that word, but that's what it is, kind of the broader triggers between Japan and its neighbors uh, over the past. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I actually was not aware that um, members of the Chietai cannot be enshrined there. I did not know that. Um, I think cannot might not be the right word they are not enshrined there unless and and the thing about yaskuni i mean this is um there have been court cases about yaskuni and, and jietai right but um yaskuni is for people who've died in the name of the emperor so which largely implies you've died at war and post-war japanese self-defense forces have never fought in a war in combat but there have been, and there is, you know, everybody thinks Yasukuni, which is in Ichigaya or Kudanshita, rather, Kudanshita, right, is only Yasukuni, is, that is Yasukuni, but there are actually Yasukuni shrines around the country. So there are branch offices all around. And the the, the Yasukuni shrine was various, also very associated in the post-war period with the bereaved veterans associations, right? Um, lots of tugging and pulling between the state and the veterans or the veterans' families. Well, you have some of the court cases that were really interesting in the post-war period are families who say, I don't want to be enshrined there. And it was a training accident and the GHI um, had passed away. Officer or personnel had died in, in performance of duty, but not in combat, right? And the local Yaskuni wanted to put them in or wanted to say a prayer and inscribe the name and the family didn't like it. Um, there are others where um, Korean families, so as you know, there's a very large Korean uh, population in Japan and uh, Korean families did not want their their family members enshrined in Yaskuni who fought in World War II for the Japanese Imperial Army. They wanted them to come out or take them out. So you see little pockets of that kind of, of legal action against the state. Um, but I think in the post-war period, the boat, the most, defining point here is that Japan has never gone to war. Right. Yeah. That, that obviously changes the, the sort of the context in such a way. And if Japan at point, some point does go to war, that's going to raise a what question. What is that going to do to public opinion about, right? Right. And there is another place just for, just to put an end to this footnote on where to, there is another, there is another cemetery. Um, and uh, that cemetery is what we would call something equivalent to the unnamed soldier. These are people who could not be identified, but must, but, but the state needed to, to honor their, you know, status as veterans. Uh, again, this goes through 1945. Um, and that cemetery, the American occupation and then subsequent American uh, officials has visited uh, that cemetery because it's not associated with the imperial, right, the imperial attachment. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, so there's just an enormous amount to talk about in this book, and and so now I want to I want to poke a little bit here and see if I can prod you to speculate a little bit about the future as it relates to Japan's process of rearming. And and I'm always hesitant to do this because I think any of us who study any other country realize speculation is difficult. And um, But I am kind of curious, where do you think Japan might be going over the next 10 or 20 years with its military? And, um, you know, you see interesting things like the, uh, what are the two uh, flat-topped 
ships that carry aircraft that they don't call aircraft carriers. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, there are reasons for that. And, 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 you know, I'm kind of curious where you think Japan is headed and also kind of how it intersects with their desire to become a permanent member, member of the UN Security Council, which I know has been voiced in Japan for some time. So, you know, could you talk a little bit about what, where you think things are going? Sure. So um, there's a couple of things in there. Let me let me start with um, just a comment that's usually easy to say, but it's important that we start here. And that is just to end the constitutional Article 9 piece is Japan has one of the world's most sophisticated militaries. It's one of the top spenders on military power. It has never changed Article 9. So all of this has been accomplished under the rubric of the current constitution. Um, and so one of the things that I caution policy, our policymakers about is they inevitably go to Article 9. Well, when are they going to change their constitution so they can have a real military? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> so go out in the Indo-Pacific and, and, and operate with the Japanese self-defense forces. <laughs> and you will quickly come to the conclusion that they're, they are a real military, <laughs> especially their Navy and Air Force. Um, and... Um, they're technologically advanced, they're professionally institutionalized, right, in a operating capacity as military professionals that are as accomplished as most around the world, barring the experience of combat, right? And that's an important little caveat there. But, um, and they've done all that without changing their constitution. So I don't believe that Japan the constitutional change will then automatically change <laughs> the Japanese military. I think what we've seen and what I tried to lay out in the book is you've seen an evolution in operations in, you know, kind of sophisticated technological procurement uh, in the debate about what the self-defense force needs to do to defend Japan. So to stay within the rubric of the defense of Japan, but that today is to defend against North Korea nuclear, potentially nu nuclear or chemical or, you know, what, what, you know, weapon tipped missiles. It means contending with the Chinese Navy, which is no sneeze, right? Even though it too has very little experience, it is large and powerful and they're, you know, manufacturing ships, whether they're Coast Guard or naval ships that are coming off the, the, the factory line there with amazing acceleration. Um, it means contending with the Chinese Air Force. It means contending with the, Jap the, the Russian Air Force up north. Um, so it, 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 it means dealing with some of the most formidable militaries and nuclear militaries uh, in the world, right? Uh, the Japanese are doing a pretty good job, <laughs> at least in peacetime. But technologically, they've had to evolve their emissions to be able to cope with that change in their environment. And that means that they're, they, they have a very sophisticated, advanced capability um, that's not necessarily captured when we say it's a non-nuclear power. Um, but what they've tried to do is not allow, they have what they call standoff strike, which allows their Navy and their Air Force and their ground self-defense forces in the Southwest and others to be able to attack things coming at Japan from a considerable distance, hundreds of kilometers. <laughs> um, but what they are now debating, and you ask me what's ahead, and so I think we can be completely confident in the speculation <laughs> this year. After the upper house election, as we get into the fall, Japan will announce a new new uh, security strategy, 
So you'll see the second only, right? The first one was done in 2013 under the Abe cabinet. Um, I expect that that security strategy will be quite forceful in the way they talk about Russia. Uh, it'll be quite forceful in the way they talk about China. It'll be quite forceful in the way they talk about North Korea as direct threats to Japan's defenses. Um, you're also going to see in the fall of the, the, a 10-year defense plan. So this is their next decade-long defense plan in which that counter-strike debate is going to be reflected one way or the other. It'll either be reflected in terms of a research and development initiative or it'll be reflected in a procurement or a, you know, it, something in that 10-year plan is going to give us the answer, Japan's answer to do we need conventional strike? And just for your listeners who are not military nerds, this simply means the, the ability to reach out and touch thousands of kilometers, uh, China, North Korea, right? Uh, it's a non-nuclear capability the Japanese are pursuing, but it is a conventional long-range missile and or other kind of platform that would give them that capability. And the argument, the rationale for that capability is ballistic missile defenses were seen to be the technical solution to the fact that everybody else in the region has ballistic missiles and Japan doesn't. But now the time has come for Japan to be able to retaliate, to threaten retaliation and thereby deter a miscalculation by any of its neighbors about Japan's response. Um, there's a fairly strong consensus in Washington and Tokyo that the time has come for Japan to have that retaliatory capability. The real question is what, what is the platform and how is it integrated with the American capabilities, strategic and others uh, in the region? And so I think there's, there's, there's details to be worked out in the alliance, but I think there's a feeling that Japan is vulnerable to the fact that all of its neighbors are increasing their defense spending, have ballistic capabilities, if not nuclear capabilities, and Japan cannot be seen as hesitant about responding, right? Um, so there's that. The last piece will be a five-year procurement plan that will actually put money on the table uh, for the next five years of implementation of that 10-year plan. And that's where I expect to see what has what has been already a campaign promise by the Liberal Democratic Party, Prime Minister Kishida's party, and that is uh, an aspiration of, of doubling Japan's defense spending. You know, making it look more like the NATO allies, which is 2% of GDP. Surprisingly, when the prime minister, you know, the LDP issued a report, their study group issued a report and they came to Washington to do it. And Mike Green and I were on a, a panel with them uh, during Golden Week. Um, and, you know, I was, I'm quite skeptical about the 2% of GDP because frankly, it's doubling Japan's defense spending. And sure, bureaucrats can make numbers look big if they want to, right? You can tweak different categories and make something look like a defense budget item when it's not, or, you know, you can do that kind of stuff. But let's just take it at face value, which is what many people are arguing, which is Japan needs to accelerate its investment in military capabilities. 2% um, of the Japanese GDP is nothing to sneeze at. Japan is still the third largest economy in the world. So it's, it's, it's in absolute terms, that's a biggie, right? But what it does mean in terms of annual changes in the defense budget right now, and I'm going to be very rough because the yen is floating all over the place. <laughs> so, but let's just say we'll put it at 55 billion is somewhere around there um, is what the Japanese annual defense budget was last year. If you take that, and you say, I'm going to double that 
because now politicians are talking about, including the prime minister is using within five years. So they've not only said we're going to have 2% of GDP spent on military or defense, but we're going to do it within five years. So that's, that's a crisp, right? That means you're going to have to, to get from 55 billion to 110 billion. And we're just doing back of the envelope here, right? For, for illustration, you, you've got at least a $10 billion increase each year for the next five years to get anywhere near that number. Um, $10 billion of new spending per year. That's a lot of money. Um, and that you can hide that in, you know, salaries or you can hide it in, you know, hardening shelters or, you know, but that's an awful lot of money to spend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I'm I'm curious. You know, you you, you talked about you know uh, developing ballistic missile capacities. Do you think Japan will go nuclear at some point? So I avoid the well. The, I don't avoid it. I I don't see that as a natural extension yet. Um, and I do. So again, back to your speculative question. This is what we're going to see this year. So this is what we're going to see by the end of 2022. Some of these issues will be resolved. Um, and if you watch Japan, it, it in in your the Japanese Prime Minister and his some of his cabinet members in Europe this week, um, you, you'll see that the Japanese are saying things in the G7. You know, they're saying things at the NATO summit. They're meeting with fellow Indo-Pacific allies of the United States to, to, to single out China. There's a lot going on that Japan is putting its money where its mouth is in ways it never has in the past, right? Um, so this is not just the military side. It's not the only side where you can see this much, much more active Japan. I wouldn't say assertive Japan, but much more active Japan in the in global politics today. And, and they are very firmly trying to put themselves on the side of sustaining the current liberal order. Um, and I, it, it, but they're doing things in defense technology and supply chain resilience. And we wouldn't call it decoupling with a big D, but let's call it with a little D. Uh, they're, they're, they're moving and shaking in a way that is really putting Japan on the forefront of some of these um, strategic discussions that I think it's really important to note. So speculatively, I think Japan understands it's a coalition power. And, you know, we often say, oh, it's going nuclear or it's going independent or it's I think coalition strategies are the way that Japan matches the aspiration of Article 9 with the real real the reality that its security environment is deteriorating. Right. Um, And. I think I don't see Japan. So back to your nuclear question, I think there is deep resistance, uh, not just among the Japanese public, but also in the policymaking community uh, for a straight on nuclear bolt, right? And the deep resistance comes from obviously Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan's identity is the only country against which nuclear weapons have been used. Um, and the prime minister, for your audience who doesn't know, is is from Hiroshima, Mr. Kishida. Um, and next year, the G7 will be hosted in Hiroshima. So um, he expect the non-proliferation objectives, right, of Japan to come back into the forefront. Um, but I think the other piece, though, is if you think about it, and this is getting really wonky, this is getting nuclear wonky. Um, but United States, Russia, 
now China, uh, India, Pakistan. These are all continental powers. And continental powers can have the, the, what we call the strategic triad, right? The nuclear triad. So you have nuclear weapons that can be on missiles, which will launch and hit in 15 to 20 minutes. They are launched on strategic bombers, which take longer, but will get there sooner or later. And submarines, which you can't find them. And these are the ones that are going to come up and bite you because <laughs> you don't know where they are, right? So the strategic triad, the redundancy of the strategic triad has long been seen as the safety, right, of ensuring our nuclear strategic arsenal is going to, if it needs to be used, it will be able to be used no matter what the other side does, right? It, Japan is an archipelagic state. It, it has Alps, running down the backbone of many islands. It can't deploy missiles without having them be, be taken out by an adversary. There's just not enough land, land area in what the wonky folks call strategic depth for a nuclear option to be thought of seriously. So what you, you have in the past, you've got uh, military and non-military defense experts having come, you know, writing about what is what would make sense. And the conclusion has been an SLBM force, much like the French the Charles de Gaulle forced to frap. We will have nuclear submarines. You won't know where they are. You know that we have the uh, we have a nuclear capability, so you don't use anything against us, kind of thing. But France is also embedded in NATO. So, <laughs> um, but 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 the Japanese also have worked this through that they are not situated either geographically or top topographically, right? They are not situated well for a strategic for a nuclear arsenal. So it's not just public opinion and sentiment. It, there's a whole range of issues um, that come up here. But, you know, Prime Minister Abe, former prime minister, has floated this idea of nuclear sharing as the Russians have began to intimate that they might be willing to use nuclear weapons if, if, the, if the Americans get into the fight in Ukraine. Um, and I think that's an interesting a lot of us were scratching our heads going, Abe has never said anything like that before. Um, but I think among, and I, I don't think he's saying it all by himself. I think among the kind of policy elite, the expert community, security community, is a recognition that Japan should be having the conversation. Yeah. And again, for your audience, it doesn't, follow nuclear stuff. This nuclear sharing means that actually American nuclear weapons would be stationed in and around Japan to add more credibility to the idea that if China attacked Japan, the United States would be engaged and would be engaged with strategic response, right? Not just uh, uh, defend, defending the Senkakus, right? Um so there's all kinds of ideas coming out on the table today, and it's they're accelerated. You know, they're coming because of China's rising capability and its behaviors. They're accelerating because the North Koreans are in kind of a rogue state that will pretty soon seem to have a deliverable nuclear weapon. <laughs> and they're massively accelerating because one of the largest powers in the world has just decided it can invade with tanks a sovereign state, its neighbor, without you know, without thinking that there are consequences. So I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of accelerating going on here in terms of Japanese thinking and speaking, but their options remain pretty much 
limited in the same way they did in 1954 when they were debating that self-defense force law. In the world that we live in, what will provide us with security? Right. Yeah, that's right? the fundamental question. Yeah. And I think the answer is still going to be a coalition response, whether it's in the alliance structure with the United States or it's an expanded U.S. allies, including the Quad. Um, you know, the security cooperation with Japan and Australia these days has been amazing to watch, right? So I think this is this is the future for Japan is a coalition response and a continued hope that the U.S.-Japan alliance will offer Japan strategic mm-hmm. protection. So. So what's up next in your research? Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you're doing now and what your plans sure. for writing are in the future? Well, as you can tell, I'm reading and writing a lot about Japan's response to Ukraine. And then by extension, the U.S.-Japan alliance's response to a potential worst case scenario across the Taiwan Strait. Um, that's the kind of topic. These are the topics of the moment in the world, that, in the think tank world that I live in. Um, but I have... Two books. <laughs> I sounds very ambitious. Um, that my mind is working through. One is more work through than the other. So the one that's more work through than the other is a book that's tentatively called at the moment "Coming Undone." Um, the post-war, the post-war piece, the post-war order. The U.S. I don't know this. The, what comes after the semicolon is always moving around in my mind. Um, the U.S. negotiated. The U.S. led. The U.S. negotiated post-war peace in, a, in Northeast Asia. But but here's what the book is doing. I've, I'm spending a lot of time in the archives of the people that negotiated the San Francisco Peace Treaty and the people that negotiated the Japan ROK Treaty in '65 because it it Im, embed that and the China. Uh, the Japan PRC treaty in 78 had the normative premises of San Francisco embedded in it. And that is no reparations, but Japanese, you know, commercial engagement. Um, But so what I'm doing is going back to the beginning and saying, okay, so as they were negotiating the post-war peace, what did they think about three things, three things that are under contention today, territorial disputes, the islands and the maritime boundaries, the, question of compensation, reparations back then, but that was a bad word, right? But compensation, reparations, and who gets them and why? And then this premise of American strategic protection. And it's not just that I'm looking at America's two allies, but I'm looking at how the peace and the, the negotiated peace of the post-war um, set the table, so to speak, and how the table is coming undone <laughs> somewhat. And, and it, it, I often in Washington, and I've had a couple of roundtables with my colleagues at CFR, and, and they say, well, why do you think the Americans did it wrong? And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with the Americans doing it wrong. It has to do with where I start most of my research or where I gut level follow most of my instincts, and that is domestic political actors are questioning the premises of those. So whether they're territorial disputes, and there you have the state and domestic actors, it's compensation. It's largely citizen-driven. It's not state-driven. In fact, the state governments are, and, and, you know, just don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, right? But, and then the strategic protection for that, it's largely about not just questioning inside Japan or South Korea, but questioning in the United States. Is this the, why should we do this anymore, right? So what I'm looking at is the way in which these compromises and these 
ideas of what would constitute the peace, right, and protect the peace, um, how they're being questioned 70 years later. And it's not to condemn negotiators of the day. There's some really amazing episodes in, in the archival and the diet debates and stuff. It's really amazing. Um, for example, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, there's a senator. I'm using this in the book, so I won't tell you his name right now. But um, his favorite way of referring to the San Francisco Treaty is as a Christian treaty. And it, <laughs> I knew you'd love that. Um, and that's how he went to the floor to defend it. This is a Christian treaty. It's all about our identity as a Christian nation um, and our ability to forgive. So the mind, but, but we're back in 1945. I mean, we're back in the 40s and early 50s, right? And the way in which American politicians spoke to the American public about why should we do this with the country that we were so antagonistic towards not that long ago, they didn't go as they kind of went a little bit with the Korean War, but they really led with a values approach, the Christian treaty, the beneficent approach. You know, it was imbued with American arrogance, of course, American power. Yes, absolutely. But but they were calling for a way of forgiveness. And they were basically, this is, they went to the floor in the Senate because they wanted the public of the United States to say this is a good thing. In the world we live now, we want Japan to be with us. We don't want Japan to be against us. And we have to find a way to forgive, right, an adversary. So there's there's just language there that that we don't talk, we don't speak that language anymore in, in, in how we approach our foreign policy or the way we think about our implementation of strategy. We, we use very different language today, but that that's one of the pieces that I want to bring out. Um, but also on the Japanese and South Korean side, the sticking points are very different. So what was sticking points in the American senators and John Foster Dulles and things like very different when you get to the other side. Um, and so those are the things that I want to highlight because those are the things, the third rails that we're looking at today in these relationships, they're virtually different than the third rails back then. So these are newly, I, won't, I don't want to say newly constructed because that sounds a little too, um, a little too trite. But in the geopolitical moment that we are in, we are also seeing this rising question about well, why are we doing this? Why did we do that? And it's not right to do that anymore, and, or it's not in our interest to do it anymore. Um, so that's the book. Sorry, long-winded explanation. Um, I am not a diplomatic historian, but I'm pretending to be one. And it's a lot of fun <laughs> to go back and, and, and read back then. I have yet to master enough Korean to be able to tackle the National Assembly. Um, archives, but I'm hoping to get a little bit of Korean under my belts. That was my pandemic goal. And then a research assistant to help me, but it's fun stuff actually. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. I, I actually look really forward to uh, reading that when it comes out, because I think that is actually, I, you know, well, I've learned a whole lot today, but that, that, that uh, point about, you know, this is a Christian tree. I had not heard that before, but that's a very interesting idea. And, and I have often, thought about the fact that w whether it's Christian or whatever, the U.S.'s reaction at the end of World War II was very unusual. It was not a normal response of a victor. And 
I think it was a really good response. It was a really good way to try to move forward. Um, and it's interesting to contextualize that also in the kind of the discourse of the time and, and ideas about Christianity. So that's, that's a really interesting So it's fascinating because it puts you in the mindset at the time and lets you yes. see through that that prism. The other thing, John, that I think is so important, and even us Japan experts don't appreciate it, is the debate about the United Nations preceded San Francisco by a couple of years, right? And the San Francisco Peace Treaty was signed in the same building, in the same room that the United Nations delegation visited. And what you, what you, I had, you know, I grew up as a Japan expert. I studied U.S. Japan. I studied through this prism and I had, and, and, and yet I'm an IR scholar. So I study the world and World War II and the, after, the aftermath and UN and all that kind of stuff. I had never put the two together quite so concretely. Is that the same people in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee had just come through that debate over the utility of collective security, right? And similarly, they had just come away irate at the Soviets, right? Because in that UN debate is when the U.S.-Soviet relationship starts to fall apart. And in the San Francisco Peace Treaty, the Soviets would not, they walked out. They didn't sign it, which is why the Japanese and Russia today don't have a peace treaty. Um, so, so, so it is a, we are there at the, you know, we're there at the, um, at the beginning. I mean, it's a, it's a construction of a post-war order even more as, as, as much as it is a two adversaries signing a peace treaty, you know, there are a hundred and some countries that signed that San Francisco peace treaty. It wasn't just the United States and Japan, but it was a U.S. led negotiation at that time. And it was the birth of the cold war. You know, it's that early moment when the Korean war had really upended this idea that the alliance with the Soviets was going to last. Um, so it's an, it's it, in that way, we are in this moment today in our view of the world as it is dissolving, right? That, that order that we had all, I don't know, I, my generation is, is sort of post Vietnam, but, but, you know, I was a child when Vietnam was going on, but, um, but that idea that there was an institutional framework within which countries would peacefully resolve their disputes. Sure. We didn't abide by that all the time, right? We went to war. Um, it wasn't as if peace broke out and war was never again seen on the planet. But but the normative underpinnings of that vision of how the world should work is, I think, what, what we're all so shocked at when we think about, you know, it's being ruptured by the Soviets. It's the Soviets, listen to me, the Russians. <laughs> the Russians saying... <laughs> You're part of us. We're going to take you. That's a world, you know, my grandparents lived in. I didn't live in that world, right? Where it was justified that way. Um, I mean, blatant. You're, you're ours. <laughs> We're going to take you. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of like I'm living in that world <laughs> and I'm back in the archives reading about the world that they're trying to patch back together and create preventatives, right? Um, and the irony might be for the Northeast Asian relationships anyway, it's not the, it's not the rise and fall of power, you know, the old fashioned kind of way of thinking about what changes the world. It's actually the democratization and 
the, the strengthening of citizen voice, right, that is now making the implementation of those security treaties so so difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's interesting too. I think about the the, the post war generation, and and so I'm, I I've always liked you know Japanese monster movies and things like that. But one of the things that's always intrigued me is that when you watch things like Ultraman. It's always a UN force or whatever. And there really was this kind of broad popular kind of image that we were heading, at least in this direction, where that's how we solved our problems. And it is. It seems to be just coming yep. undone right now. Right. Yeah. Now, you asked me about the UN Security Council, and I, I know we have to go, so I don't very brief. But one of the things that has changed, and I wrote a little bit about this in the book, um, others, one of my uh, um dear friends and colleagues at Columbia wrote his PhD, Bill Heinrich, on this. It was a fantastic uh, dissertation on the Japanese decision to join UN peacekeeping. Uh, and that was back, as you remember, 1990-91, right? The Gulf War, the, what we call now the first Gulf War, when Japan really didn't feel like it could join a coalition with us. But instead... <coughs> that we can contribute through strengthening peacekeeping in, in the UN and we will send our very first peacekeeping mission to the UNTAC in, in Cambodia, right? Um, so now Japan's, you know, 10% of the Japanese self-defense force have served in, in PKO missions abroad and they've served in some of the more difficult settings around the world. Um, but, I, you know, it, Security Council is one piece. I, I think the Japanese have always advocated that nuclear weapons should not be a requirement for Security Council membership. Whereas if you'll look at the current Security Council members, they're all nuclear powers, right? Um, but I think you, you should also, and your listeners should also pay attention to Prime Minister Kishida because he's now calling for, once again, um, UN Security Council reform based on where we see ourselves today, right? The Russians just shutting down the conversation on Ukraine because they are a Security Council member. Uh, so the UN Security Council really not functioning um, at probably one of the worst, uh, you know, and most obvious, right? And most egregious cases of the invasion of another country um, done by a Security Council member, for God's sakes. Um, so, so that has prompted Kishida to remind the world. And if you, it, there's a there's a meeting in Singapore every year sponsored by the International Institute for Strategic Studies (IISS). It's called the Shangri-La Dialogue, and it's online. You can go. Uh, and Prime Minister Kishida was in, in, invited to give the keynote speech. And one, he had five elements he wanted to put up there. And one of them was UN Security Council reform. So I think it's going to go back to the top of Japan's list. Uh, of its diplomatic goals is to make the Security Council able to function in crises and not be host held hostage by um, by the country that actually committed the aggression, right? Right, right, yeah. Well, I think that's a, a good place for us to bring our chat to a, an end. And Sheila, I want to really thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your joining me on the New Books Network. And uh, I will say that anyone who's interested in Japan or even more generally in East Asia will find this book to be just a, a fantastically provocative and interesting read. And so it's been a pleasure talking with you about this wonderful book. Thank you, John. I appreciate you took the time to reach out and I really love the conversation as well. It's always fun to talk about these issues and it's especially fun to talk with a Japan expert like yourself. So Indeed. thank you for having me. Thank you.